How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we'll peer into the future of freshwater in California. Droughts have long been a part of California's history, but 2013 could be the driest year on record. Rain will come, but experts say water supplies will be more volatile and less predictable than it has been in our lifetimes. The carbon pollution wafting from our cars, homes, and dinner plates is disrupting the Earth's climate, and that's impacting snow and rainfall. Over the next hour, we'll wade into California's rivers and aquifers with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, This program is underwritten by the Stephen D. Bechtel Fund and the Pisces Foundation. We're pleased to be joined by four water experts. Heather Cooley is the co-director of the water program at the Pacific Institute. Brandon Goshi is manager of the water policy and strategy at the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Bob Wilkinson is an adjunct associate professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara. And Lester Snow is executive director of the California Water Foundation. He previously served as California's Secretary for Natural Resources under Governor Schwarzenegger. Please welcome them to Climate One. (laughs) Lester Snow, let's begin with you. How prepared is California for the impacts of climate change on its water system? Uh, Better than almost any other state and not sufficiently. I mean, I think we pay a lot more attention to it here. It's gotten a lot more uh, planning, studies, research, and I think we're way behind the curve. And, and in fact, I, I would say that um, unless we change the way that we're doing things, we're going to continue to fall behind the changes that we're seeing in our, our water resources. We'll get into that more. Heather Cooley, would you agree? California prepared? Uh, I would agree that we are certainly, you know, uh, doing more than we are in many places across the country, but we could be doing a lot more. Um, You know, there are some water utilities in some parts of California, generally the larger, more well-resourced agencies that are starting to um, try to understand what the impacts are starting to plan for it. There aren't many that are yet doing projects um, to begin to adapt to climate change. Brenda Goshi, what is uh, Southern California doing to prepare for climate impacts on water? I think uh, it's a greater recognition that climate is one of the uncertainties that we face, uh, along with other uncertainties into the future, and it's a matter of looking at how those uncertainties can affect the water resources and the water reliability, particularly for our service area, and the approaches that we can take to try and address those. Okay. Uh, before we go any further, Bob Wilkinson, let's ask you uh, to give a little bit of an explainer about how the draw, connect the dots between climate change and the water supply. How does climate disruption affect water? So some have said that uh, where climate change is essentially a result of increased temperatures, water is going to be the, the thing that, is, um, that translates it for people's real experience. So under warmer conditions, you have more... Um, basically more action in the hydrologic cycle, more uptake, some more precip on a global average. But what it really means for a place like California is still uncertain. We're, we're not even clear on the signal, wetter or drier. could be some of both. It does look like uh, more extreme precipitation is in the cards. 
and probably more prolonged drought. So drier dries, wetter wets, and then that's a challenge. As Lester's pointed out uh, a number of times, this is something that water managers have been dealing with for a long time. But extremes, uh, exacerbating the extremes, is is what climate change brings with us. On top of that, um, snowpack for California is a very important free storage system. So it's the equivalent of roughly all of our surface storage combined, what's stored in snow and ice in the mountains, uh, and then released uh, at, at a time in the year when that's very handy to have it. Lacking that, so losing that free storage, uh, that nature services, if you will, is a, is a significant issue. And, of course, demand will go up because as you have increased temperatures, especially during the drier cycles, for agriculture, for urban uh, systems, you're going to have people asking for more water. Ecosystems uh, needing more water and using more water through transpiration of, of plants. So increased demand, increased variability of supply. Uh, and so uh, to tag on to the previous question, water managers have actually, of all the different professional groups, been, I think, out ahead on this over the last 10, 15 years, thinking about modeling, discussing what will this mean. And part of that is building resilience. How do you manage groundwater more effectively? Uh, how do you uh, use water more efficiently so that you've got it when you need it? Uh, so we can talk more about that, but I think that is an important dimension of the discussion as this is not new for water managers, uh, but there are a lot of challenges ahead. Lester Snow, let's talk about 2013. could be one of, if not the driest calendar year on record for California. Water is measured in different, uh, different cycles, but most uh, consumers think in calendar years. Where are we in the calendar right. year for, for water in California? Uh, we're not in a good spot. Um, I guess I would back up. Um, people might remember last year, especially if you're a skier, there was great skiing in December. I mean, a, a wonderful snowpack, 138% of normal, I think, by the time you hit the first, second week of January. The system absolutely shut down in January, and there was no appreciable snowfall or precipitation after that. Now, as, as a result of that, playing off what Bob said, not only do we not have the big reservoir of snowpack, then we proceeded over the summer in order to meet demands to pull down our reservoirs. So we, we go into the new snowfall season with the reservoirs way below normal. And what that sets up is the potential of, even if it's an average year or especially a below average year, we will be in very serious drought conditions next year. And California's used to being in serious drought conditions, but is this different somehow? I mean, anyone who, who grew up in California, as I did, we're used to we, droughts come and they go, and some are worse than others, but... Is this fundamentally different now? Yeah, it, I think it, it plays off of Bob's point. What climate change has already brought, so this is not something off in the future to argue about, is greater extremes. We're having higher peak flows in the rivers, meaning greater flood risk, and then the droughts are coming more frequently. And then the other thing that plays into this is that we have systematically drawn down some of our great reserves, like groundwater. So if, if you paid attention to the press this year, we've seen more press on groundwater problems in California this year than we've seen in the last 10 years. So groundwater is a natural buffer, but we have overdrafted our groundwater basins in the Central Valley of California by the amount of Lake Tahoe. 
And so we've pulled down massive reservoirs. So it's, it's an accumulation of issues that now is being exacerbated by climate change. And Brandon Goshi, is this recognized in Southern California that we're entering a, a new chapter in California's water history and are people kind of grappling with that reality? Well, I, I think it's more of an evolving uh, future than a, than a new future. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've looked at um, uncertainty again and tried to deal with that in Southern California in a number of ways. The last big drought, uh, the, the famous drought of the 1990s, was really, if you want to have a wake-up call for Southern California, uh, that showed that there was a need to diversify the resources that we had to invest more money into water use efficiency measures, conservation, recycled water, uh, storage. Uh, so over the last 20 years, um, we've tried to build a system that's diversified and more resilient. Um, and so when we see this challenge coming, I think, you know, in addition to the climate challenges, I think it's new because there's also addition, additional regulatory challenges and environmental challenges as well that may not have uh, been there in the past. So um, new, no, challenging, definitely. Uh, and we're working towards uh, trying to stay um, in line with that. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because it's actually a success story that uh, is not that well known. Cal- uh, Southern California is, has more people and using about the same water. So tell us uh, what you learned and what you did as a result of that 1990s drought. Well, I, I think it was a recognition that uh, reliance on imported water supplies, which uh, for Southern California had comprised um, sometimes more than half of the water supplies that were needed in a particular year. Uh, since 1990, uh, the water use efficiency measures like conservation uh, that have been put in place, water, uh, water recycling, uh, groundwater cleanup, uh, all of those resources, uh, we've been able to generate an equivalent of over a million acre-feet. And when you think about and an acre foot for Southern California anyways is, is enough water for two families for a year, we've generated over a million acre feet of water use efficiency-based savings uh, that reduces our demands for uh, supplies uh, on the imported systems. And so by reducing our reliance on those supplies, we've now made ourselves more resilient um, to the challenges that, that we're talking about tonight. So Southern California used to have a pretty bad reputation for water management. As a college kid, I went down and remember watching people water their sidewalks in the middle of the day. That's no longer valid. No. Bob Wilkinson, is that true? Well, another way to say what Brandon just said is is, uh, within his service area, and there's 19, 20 million people. 19 million, yeah. um, They've added about 2 million people, and they're using less water with an additional 2 million people than they were a couple decades ago. Uh, and there are a lot of things that went into that, but I think he's, he's right. And uh, I believe we have a long way to go. We still have a lot of opportunities to use water more efficiently, fix the leaks, change the plumbing. A big one for uh, urban Southern California is landscape. But a lot of those same issues are very much the case in this area, the urban San Francisco Bay Area, and a lot of great work going on here with some of the projects, East Bay Mud, Sonoma County Water Agency, and Marin, and, and you go on around the Bay Area. A lot of opportunity. Some people say San Francisco's not as uh, efficient with its water because they've got Hetch Hetchy locked up there in the, in the Sierras and they don't have the same incentives or stress. Is that fair, Heather Cooley, or not? 
No, San Francisco has made a lot of investments and, in fact, has among the lowest per capita water use in California. Part of that is driven by the climate. It's a relatively cool climate. You also have dense urban areas that don't have people don't have a lot of landscaping. You have multifamily housing. Tent, uh, multifamily housing tends to use less water than single family. So all of those sort of factors are working in San Francisco's fa- uh, favor. But on top of that, they've made huge investments in water conservation and efficiency um, and and have done a great job. I I agree with Bob. There's a lot more that can be done here in San Francisco, Central California, Southern California. We have a long way to go to to be efficient, um, but we are moving in that direction. Heather Cooley, what are some other success stories, places around the state that have really done as Southern California has done, uh, where they really are are on the, the cutting edge of managing water wisely? Well, I think on, on the conservation and efficiency side, certainly in Southern California, and there are many of, of, of Metropolitan's member agencies that, are, that have done great things in Long Beach, for example, uh, Irvine Ranch. They've done some really innovative um, practices, policies, looking at their rate structures and other sorts of efficiency investments. Um, you also, in addition to efficiency, have a lot of communities that are looking at water reuse and that becoming a significant sort of component of what they're doing. Um, in Orange County, you have a very innovative program where they're treating uh, wastewater and using that and recharging groundwater. Um, they, too, had, had overdrafted their groundwater and are using that um, that, that drawdown um, as a, a sort of storage, and it's sort of an underground reservoir. And so there's a lot of really innovative innovative things going on there as well. And does Mother Nature clean up the water? Well, they treat the water to very high quality, um, and they inject it underground. And, and ironically, what they then pull up and, and treat and put back into the uh, potable water system, what they're pulling up is of uh, lesser quality than when they originally injected it. So um, they do treat that water to very high quality, um, and it is used by uh, many people in Orange County, and they're very happy with that investment that they made. They've been doing it for, for decades, um, and they're continuing and are planning to even do more in the future. Lester Snow, I learned a, a fun term researching for this program, uh, showers to flowers. Uh, so uh, <laughs> tell us about recycling. That's, uh, it's been politically, it might be war- smart water policy, but it, politically that can be a tough sell. So do you see the, more recycling in our future? Oh, I, I don't think there's any, any question about it. Uh, first, to just play off of what, what Heather said, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of critical about, how fast the, the, I'll call it, the water industry is moving in California. Yet, if you can think of an innovative approach to deal with climate change, it's happening somewhere in California. And so the challenge becomes, how do you take this innovation and progressive management and spread it so it's the norm, not the exception? And one of those issues is um, wastewater recycling. There's a, you'll hear people in the business talk about the purple pipe approach. And so that means cleaning up water, putting it in a distinct pipe that's not for potable use and running it out to large landscaped areas. That ends up being very expensive, and there's only so far that you can go. And so the next frontier is much more widespread acceptance of indirect and direct potable reuse, and you get it back into the drinking water supply. I don't think there's any question from a technical standpoint that it is safe and needs to be done. You you have perception issues and sometimes I would call it the lack of political leadership to move things forward. There was 10 years ago in San Diego um, an, an effort to go to potable and run water into a reservoir upstream 
uh, very highly treated water. And I think one day the, the paper ran an editorial um, showing the dog drinking out of the toilet and the owner saying, move over, Fido, it's my turn. And the politics in that community turned on a dime. They're back at it now because they need to develop that water supply. Uh, yes, and, and these days in the age of social media, one one image or picture on Facebook and Twitter can really yeah, wreak a, a lot of havoc. Um, do we need more surface storage, more concrete, Bob Wilkinson, to, to store water for our future? Not sure. It's obviously a, a very volatile question. Uh, surface storage is, uh, we have a lot of surface storage. One thing in the context of climate change, one of the issues is, with greater uncertainty and greater variability, we're inevitably going to need to reserve more storage space in existing surface storage or anything new that we would build to deal with flood. So if you've got potentially more coming down less predictably and you're worried about flood control, and most of our reservoirs deal with flood as well as water storage and hydro power, uh, then you're going to need to hold more space in reserve for flood control. That that means a cost for water supply and for hydro. So given all that, we need to be brutally honest, I would say, about the accounting on these things. And if it does pencil out and uh, it makes sense, then I think we might build some more. Uh, If it doesn't, and if, as Lester points out, if groundwater management, which provides uh, the same type of storage function, uh, it's a different place to park the water, but there's a lot of opportunity then we need to compare the two very carefully. And with warmer temperatures, isn't there more evaporation for, from reservoirs? Depends on where they are. In some cases, yes. Certainly the big ones in the dry areas, uh, you're going to get an increase in, in evaporation. Lester Brown, do we need more dams, more concrete in California to uh, secure our water future? Uh, I, I don't think so. I'm not a big fan of adding a lot of surface storage to address this, this problem. I am a big fan of getting more water back in the groundwater where you can leave it for longer periods of time. You have contamination issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, you'll hear people, some people talk about we need to use our surface storage facilities as four bays for groundwater recharge, meaning that you, you slow the flow of the flood flows and you let the water out and get it back into groundwater basins. The other thing is just kind of a practical issue. Those that came before us over the last 150 years didn't pick all the bad sites for building reservoirs. They picked the good sites. And so that means there's a limited number of good sites. And you see more and more uh, when people consider surface storage, this happened in Southern California, you go to what's called an off-stream reservoir. You're not actually damming up a river it's like building, a, you know, a swimming pool somewhere to move water into to use for emergencies or, or droughts. There's some of those uh, that are viable. One was built east of here um, that is useful for the, those purposes recently, an off-stream reservoir, largely off-stream reservoir. So those, um, I think there's, uh, yeah, people probably won't like this. I'll call them there's boutique applications for those. If we want to address the loss of snowpack and large amounts of storage to be held for the next drought, we need to get groundwater under control. There's a bias in Sacramento for things that are you can cut a ribbon on, unions get, to get lots of concrete, there's jobs. There's sort of a political and visual bias for concrete and projects versus 
can't see underground. We've, okay, it's good it's there, but there, there's some optics and political problems, aren't there? Yeah, well, I, I think we can figure out a way to have a brass plaque somewhere uh, okay. near the groundwater basin. Yeah. Send some of the politicians down underground? Right. Yeah, okay. Uh, Brandy Goshi, um, is this, uh, what do you think about more storage for, for Southern California's water needs? Uh, I, I tend to think of more storage as being part of the puzzle, not being the silver bullet, uh, definitely not the silver bullet. Uh, so uh, does more storage make sense? Um, maybe not today, but if some of the issues uh, in the California Bay Delta are addressed in terms of that ecosystem, uh, the ability to make that system more efficient, uh, additional conveyance that changes uh, that system so that it's uh, more functional, uh, then perhaps storage becomes a more viable piece of that solution. Uh, but storage by itself, I don't think, is going to make sense without those types addressing more of the big picture because, as Lester said, um, storage isn't worth that much if there's no water to put in it. Uh, I want to get to, to the Bay Delta, but first, uh, the idea of uh, collecting water uh, near where it's used. In, in energy, we have this idea of people putting solar on their rooftop, and you generate energy close to where it's used. Uh, and San Francisco and other cities have encouraged people to put uh, big barrels out there to collect your rainwater, the idea of collecting rain uh, water close to where it's used. Brandon Goshi, is that something that you're doing in Southern California to try to have residential collection, more what professionals right. call distributed uh, water capture? Yeah. Well, you know, California um, is a very diverse place. <laughs> it's, uh, I think, applications that are good ideas in some areas um, may not pencil out in other areas, and that's not to say that it wouldn't work in, in Southern California, but you'll often hear Southern California is a desert. Uh, putting rainwater capture in a desert doesn't tend to pay off as much uh, as putting rainwater capture where it rains. Uh, so it, it's... So we'll do it up here, but it won't happen down south. Uh, I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm saying that it might look different or the um, whether you go in a single, single site or a, collection, a collective of sites... I think those are things that need to be looked at to make sure that it makes sense for the areas that you're putting them in. Lester Snow? Well, adding on that point, I mean, there is this desire for people to do something, and there's often this rush to rain barrels. There, There is some anecdotal um, information in some areas that a rain barrel can result in increasing water use. And, and the reason is your rain barrel fills early in the rain season. You've got this wonderful garden. And now the rain barrel's empty. And so what do you do? You now use water from your city system to keep the green that you didn't have before you had the rain barrel. So you just have to be very careful. Some of these things sound great, and they're not really universally um, applicable everywhere. If you're just joining us on the radio, uh, Lester Snow is executive director of the California Water Foundation. Other guests today at Climate One are Bob Wilkinson, professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Brandon Goshi is a manager with the Metropolitan Water District in Southern California. And Heather Cooley is with the Pacific Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Heather Cooley, let's talk about the Bay Delta. That's often seen as the real, the, the hub of the state's water system. Uh, getting that right, uh, it's a very contentious issue. But what needs to be done there? Uh, to, to secure California's water future. Well, you're absolutely right. The, the Bay Delta is probably one of the most controversial issues in California water today. Um, there are issues around the amount of water that's being taken out. There are issues with invasive species. There are issues around the integrity of the levees, um, concerns about climate change and sea level rise and, and seawater intrusion. 
Um, so there are a lot of challenges there. There, there are proposals um, to sort of move where we're taking water out of the delta. Very, very controversial. Um, you know, it's a and, and that's that's been an issue in California going back to the 1980s when there was the proposals for the peripheral canal. Um, so those issues are, are challenging, and they're, they're they're ones I think that are playing out today. Um, likelihood, the, the solutions are going to be as equally challenging and complex, and there is no single solution. It's going to be partially looking at developing local supplies, reducing import, you know, reducing exports from the Delta, um, and looking at issues around flood management and how we manage some of the areas in the Delta. Lester Snow, does the Delta get too much attention? Um, that, that's difficult. Here's what I'll say that would be a yes on that part, and then I'll change to a no. Um, You've been in Sacramento too. <laughs> uh, what we often say is, is that the, the Bay Delta debate sucks all the oxygen out of the water discussion, that it's hard to get people's attention on all of these other things. But, the, the, you know, the reason I kind of hesitate, maybe playing word games, the delta has to be fixed. And, and I don't actually care what your definition of fixed is, but we've, we've got to stabilize that system. The issue is fixing it is essential to California's future, but it's not sufficient. You, you build the tunnels that the water guys want or you build the strategy that some of the environmentalists want. You still need to do all the conservation, wastewater recycling, stormwater capture that we're talking about. It doesn't fix California's long-term problems. It fixes a very specific water supply and ecosystem problem. Randy Goshi, how uh, important is it to Southern California that the Delta get fixed? Well, uh, again, and it's, it's along the same theme. The Delta is part of how we look at future water reliability uh, for Southern California. Uh, but Lester's right. Because it's so big and so important on a statewide level, it does take a great deal of the attention away from the fact that Southern California is looking at and not just looking at, has been developing over the last 20 years, reducing its reliance on those imported supplies uh, by doing the water use efficiency measures, by investing in local supplies, uh, by augmenting its other supplies so that um, the reliance on that, on that delta water system isn't as high. And I think, um, so I think it's fair. Does that mean there can be smaller tunnels? <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think the process has to be gone through to see what is the best size, what is the most appropriate ecosystem restoration program, and coordinated use of facilities. And I think that's what's being done today, that that process is designed to try and find the solution for what is really an important hub for over 60% of California's water use. 60% of the state's water goes through the Delta at some point. Uh, So when do you think there will be something, there will be action on that? Will will there be a solution? I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a track towards um, working towards a solution now. Uh, there's, um, I mean, there's, there's definitely work on the um, environmental impact side, and uh, there's a lot of progress, I think, through that Bay Delta Conservation Plan approach. And so there's a great deal of the state's effort and of the stakeholders' efforts uh, in moving that plan forward probably more today than we've seen in the last 20 years. Lester Snow, part of this is there's bonds on the state ballot. They've been punted down the roads for the last, what, three or four election cycles, $11 billion bond. Initially, uh, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, it's 
formally on the ballot for 2014, but there are some other competing bond measures that might be in the $6 billion range. How do you think that a dry 2013 will play into the bond politics of 2014? Yeah, I I think, um, as you probably know, last year, before the end of the session, there ended up being two competing bills or compatible bills, depending on how you look at it, to restructure the bond. Um, as you, you said, the, the original 2010 bond is now on the 2014 ballot. There's actually some talk that it should be the 2016 bond. Um, I think what will happen with the, the drought, especially severe drought or even a modest drought, there will be a lot of uh, highly increased attention on the bond. And my guess would be uh, the, 14, the current 2014 bond will be pulled off and replaced with a retooled, but I would expect the numbers to go up from the current drafts. Uh, probably moving from the five that's um, in the in the draft bills closer to the 11 that was on the ballot now. Because people are, are after a dry 2013, people are going to say, "Gosh, we got to spend some money on water because we're in tight spot here." Yeah, I, I think um, uh, both drought and flood are the kind of things that are in people's face immediately, and as soon as it changes, they forget about it. But when they're in a flood, they want people to take action right now to deal with flooding. And when you're in a drought, you want people to deal with water supply. And so I think there will be great pressure to fund a, a wide variety of projects to try to help buffer the next drought. Bob Wilkinson, are some uh, advocates of the bonds or some water people praying for drought? <laughs> Undoubtedly. Uh, I mean, this is, and this is something that goes back over a century in California water history. Is uh, If you want to push for... Um, uh, People allocating money, it helps a lot if you've got a dry condition and if people perceive that. Uh, so undoubtedly that's, that's the case. Let me jump back, though, if I can, on one of the, on the question on stormwater and, and uh, distribution because I think it, it's important to put it in context. If urban Southern California, that 19 or 20 million people in, in the service area of urban Southern California, about half the water supply in that whole area is local water. And so, and that is rainwater. And so you've got rainwater tanks, but you also have groundwater recharge, uh, which is tremendously important in that system. And recycling. I think about 60% of the water used in all the refineries in Southern California is already recycled water. So there's a lot of work going on and a lot more. So when we think about bonds, we think about where money goes. It's not just how big they are. This $11 billion bond is the biggest that's ever been put before the California voters and taken off and put on again and taken off. Ms. Lester says, we'll see on the next round. And unquestionably, if it's, if it's dry or wet, that'll have some influence. The other big question is, what would the money be used for? And there are big debates about that. Should it be surface storage? Should it be recycling? Should it be stormwater strategies, groundwater cleanup? Lots of different ways to spend that money. And I think that's a key part of the debate as well. Thank you. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking about water and climate one. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, there's an elephant in the room, and we haven't talked yet about agriculture. Uh, Bob Wilkinson, about 80% of water in the state goes to agriculture. Agriculture is 2% of the state economy. What should agriculture do about water? So my friends in the ag side would, would be grateful for my first saying that's 80% of the developed water supply, which is about half the water uh, total in California. Uh, so it's 80% of the developed, developed means what? Means water that we pull out of the ground or take out of surface systems in some fashion. Not just rainfall that goes somewhere. And okay. so, what actually flows down the rivers to the ocean, uh, what comes down through the through the water supply system through the delta and 
and uh, in, into the San Francisco Bay uh, is the total water system. So we take about half the water right now of the natural hydrologic cycle on average. And of that, about 80% is agriculture, about 20% is urban. And uh, ag is at about uh, 40 something billion dollars right now. It's, it's, uh, it's a two trillion dollar economy. It's about a two trillion dollar economy. So that works out to about two percent. But if you look at it, the, the value of ag production in California has gone up about 10 billion dollars in the last five years or so. It's gone from the 30s up to the 40s. And the water use has been declining because of the various issues, including dry conditions. What that tells us is that ag in California, and this is not new, but is a steady uh, pattern, as with the urban sector, we've got increasing value, increasing productivity in the ag sector, using less water, using it more efficiently, shifting crops to more valuable crops. So Heather and the Pacific Institute have done a number of good studies on this. Uh, I think that the trend is greater value, greater diversity uh, of crops in many cases, and uh, and improved water use efficiency overall. I would say we probably still have a good long way to go in terms of maintaining a viable, profitable agricultural sector and using water uh, in, in ways that would result in less of it uh, uh, necessarily being put on the fields. Heather Cooley, there's also uh, some movement away from fruits and nuts to pistachios, almonds, which I love and eat in, in great vast quantities, but they are very water-intensive. Mm-hmm. So in some areas, California <clears throat> ag is moving toward more water-intensity rather than less. Yes, to, to some degree. We're seeing uh, more planting of tree crops. They tend to need use more water. They tend to be higher-value crops, so you are getting a, an economic boost from that. Um, but they do also require water every year. So, you know, one of the benefits of some of the, the field crops, some of the annual crops, was that if it was a dry year and we needed that water, we could not grow those crops for that year. Of course, there's a there's an economic impact associated with it, but that was an option. Um, when you put in more tree crops, those plants require water every year, and so there are some risks associated with that. There are some benefits. They're higher-value crops, certainly, but, but there's a downside as well, and that's something I think we need we need to think about. Um, seriously in California. And how much of the irrigation in the state is flood irrigation, where they just flood uh, uh, fields with cheap or close to free water versus other more uh, efficient uses of water? Well, flood irrigation is still practiced, I would estimate, on around 30 to 40 percent of the crop acreage in California, so certainly a, a significant amount. Um, but it is declining. We are seeing more uh, sprinkler, including micro-sprinkler, which is very efficient. Uh, we're seeing more, much more drip irrigation, especially on these tree crops. That, that, that's something because of the high value. Um, there's more sort of opportunity to, to put in drip irrigation. So we're certainly seeing a, a move away from flood irrigation. Um, in addition, we're seeing more irrigation scheduling, so better management of, of when you apply water and how much you apply um, you know, I agree with Bob. They've made some major and tremendous improvements on the agricultural side, but there is a, a lot of potential there that remains. Lester Snow, what else should agriculture do to use water more, more wisely? Well, I, I think, just playing off of, of Heather, there there is a steady progress on improving uh, irrigation systems, and I think we just have to keep going in that direction. Um, should there be more policy pressure to do so? Uh, all kinds of incentives. I mean, we, some of the reason that they switch to higher return crops, such as almonds, which does uh, harden the demand, 
is that they then can afford to pay for the drip systems when they used to flood irrigate uh, alfalfa, for example. So I think it's moving in that direction. I think we need to assist I, um, in both incentives, coercion, whatever it takes. Uh, we're also seeing agriculture move to higher irrigation efficiencies to minimize the threat of pollution from their nutrients. And we have places in the Central Valley where you have nitrate-contaminated groundwater that clearly is a product of, you know, 60 years of, of irrigation and leaching. Now, I, I, I tend to uh, resist strongly the comparison of 80% of the water, 2% of the economy. That's roughly the world statistics. It skews a little bit, a little less of the water. Um, and so if you go that, that far, we should eliminate agriculture in the world to preserve water. Um, it doesn't work. And, in fact, uh, the uh, IPCC report, the most recent one, uh, it took, in my opinion, a bold step and started to sound the warning about agriculture and famine. If we don't start doing something to preserve agriculture, increase efficiency, we're going to start having famine as a result of climate change. So I'm a big advocate of doing what we can to make California agriculture competitive in the global market, and that means higher levels of efficiency and better crop choices. NPR did a story recently on dry farming, uh, and there apparently there's some types of crops, tomatoes and others, where they have more flavor, uh, but there's a lower yield. Is this kind of a boutique kind of thing where some places in Santa Cruz, Happy Boy Farms in Santa Cruz uh, and others were, were reported on it in this NPR story, uh, but the yield is lower, but perhaps the prices and the flavor might be higher. Let's just know, is that just a, a, a niche boutique thing, or is that going to be something? Uh, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think there is a movement in that direction. There's also... If, if you read about some of the crops that they're growing in this fashion, that tends to be healthier crops. There's a lot written about gluten and uh, growing some of the older brands of, of uh, the grains. Um, I, I don't know where the lines cross on being able to produce enough to feed people. Uh, so I think that's a, a great movement that should be encouraged, and I don't happen to have an opinion or feel for how far it can go. Brand Negoshi is the representative of the biggest population center in the state. Uh, how do you look at the agricultural sector, and are they doing enough to uh, use water wisely, uh, given the, the strains we've been talking about? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say, and I think all of the other panelists uh, touched on this already, they are making progress. And so the more uh, they recognize the water use efficiency needs, uh, they look into uh, some of the alternative technologies, uh, that's the direction that I think they will go in, and that's going to be to the benefit of them and to the, you know, to the rest of the state's economy. Let's talk about desalination. San Diego just plunked down a big pile of gold on a desalination plant. Uh, is that something that we're going to see more of, Brandon Goshi, in California? Well, I, I think that's, again, when you talk about what, what are the different types of resources that can be invested in, uh, different areas are going to make their... Uh, choices uh, based on what they think is best for their area and what they're looking for. Uh, San Diego County Water Authority is one of our member agencies, and they uh, they valued the reliability that they thought a ocean desal plant could give them. Uh, Orange County, uh, with the same company, actually, with Poseidon Resources, is looking at a similar plant, and I think that's in uh, various stages of, of permitting. Uh, will you see it? I think it's going to come down to uh, whether or not... Uh, a determination can be made whether those things make sense for the areas. You know, it's 
it's not a cheap proposition by any means. Coastal property is expensive. Uh, the operation and maintenance costs are expensive. Uh, but um, I think they, you know, resources like that should be evaluated for uh, what they are and, and how they can be used to help meet reliability. I reviewed someone recently from San Diego who proposed floating offshore desal plants, which gets at the uh, property and also some of the environmental consequences and concerns. Bob Wilkinson, mm-hmm. uh, can desalination be done in an environmentally responsible way? Let's say desal works just fine. You can get high-quality water. It is expensive, and it does take a lot of energy. And so I think the question really from a policy standpoint is, at what point is that a, a good option or... Or, you know, what other options should be exhausted first? Mm-hmm. And as you look through that, I've been doing quite a bit of work in Australia now. Uh, most of the major cities in Australia have built ocean desal plants. Only one of them is running. And these are big desal mm-hmm. plants, some of the biggest in the world. Uh, you don't run it if you really don't need it. It's very expensive, and it takes a lot of energy. So uh, San Diego's uh, price is uh, around $2,000 an acre foot. I know that's an arcane metric. Uh, but to put it in comparison, per average household is that? Well, the the, the water that uh, Metropolis is providing, I think, is about half that. It's about a thousand dollars an acre foot, and that's expensive. And a lot of agriculture is uh, dealing with a hundred dollars and less. So we have huge price differences. One option is uh, transfers. Metropolitan others are doing a lot of these water transfers. Buy some from farmers in dry years when you need it. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, but there are issues with that. That's not a magic bullet. There are a lot of options with efficiency improvement that are much, much cheaper than ocean desal. So you certainly would want to do that first before you go and, and desal water. A lot of recycling opportunities. We're recycling about 10% of the, of the wastewater in California. The 90% is going into the ocean. So we've got a huge opportunity to recycle water, and that's cheaper using a lot of the same technology, but it's a lot cheaper and easier to do that than ocean desal. So I think there's a place for it. I think we'll see it. But you sure would want to do it uh, after you've exhausted other more cost-effective alternatives. Heather Cooley? Yeah, if I can jump in on that. Um, just to t- kind of take a statewide perspective, there are 16 proposed seawater desalination plants in California and two in Mexico that would actually potentially provide water for California. Um, so there are a number of proposals. Most of those are in Southern California, although there are some in sort of the Central Coast, Monterey area because of the challenges that they're having. Um, you know, I agree we will probably see seawater desalination in California at some time. But as Bob mentioned, there is a real risk to doing it too soon. And I think we've seen that Santa Barbara. They built a plant um, in the early 1990s. And as soon as they opened the plant, the drought ended and that plant never ran. We ran it for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Tampa Bay, similar issue. They built a large plant um, and found that there were cheaper options available. So they essentially um, cut it to about a quarter or half, depending on on kind of water resource conditions. So what happens? Ratepayers, citizens get stuck with a big bill for a white elephant. (laughs) Absolutely. So in Santa Barbara, yes, water rates are very high, partially because of the desal, but there are a lot of other reasons. Um, So certainly... You know, you wouldn't want to build a de- – it's a very uh, expensive insurance policy. You really wouldn't want to build one and then shut it down. Um, but that is, in fact, what we're seeing. So there's a risk to building them um, too large or before we need them. And so it's important, as Bob mentioned, to do some of the other cheaper things first. Um, but, you know, in the long term with climate change and population growth and continued economic growth, at some point it, it's likely that we will see more in California. 
Heather Cooley is Water Program Co-Director at the Pacific Institute. Our other guest today at Climate Wonder, Brandon Goshi, a manager with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Bob Wilkinson, adjunct associate professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And Lester Snow, former Secretary of Resources for California. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to invite your participation and put an audience microphone over here. Uh, welcome you to come up and join us with a one-part brief comment or question. I'm here to help you with that. And uh, the line starts with our producer, uh, Carol Merrill, no, Jane Ann Chen right there. And then um, we will uh, invite you, if you're on this side of the room, to please go through and not cross these cameras. And um, let's include our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, nobody mentioned the Kern Water Bank, which has been one of the success stories in the last 20 years, although it's controversial as to sort of who gets the benefits down there. But Kern uh, Water Bank and other water banks in Kern County store water for most of urban Southern California, much of the Bay Area, and much of agriculture. Um, but other parts of the Central Valley aren't doing so well. Is that a geological reason or a political reason? And if it's political, what can we do about it? Lester Snow? Sure, I'll, I'll start on that. Thanks for the easy question, Spreck. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think there is a little bit of uh, geology and formation and location, but I think a, a lot of it is, is simply the, the politics. Um, in, in much of California, where you don't have a court adjudication of determining who gets to pump water, it's considered a private property right. And so that means... Um, I own property, and I can put a well on and pump as much as I want. It's a, what you could call the classic tragedy of the commons. It's not anybody's uh, responsibility to take care of it. So you have areas in California where if you if you were to do a bank, your neighbors can pump the water out of your bank. So it's like everybody having a checking account to write checks on your investments. And I think before we see the expansion of the Kern type of water bank, which is very successful, we need to see uh, some form of, of groundwater regulation in the state to provide better control and the ability for people who store water and create a bank to protect what they've invested. What's stopping more regulation on groundwater in California? Well, um, probably a couple of reasons. I think the biggest is that any time this gets queued up, and it probably has been queued up 40 times over the last 50 years, uh, the, the main issue that comes to bear is of private property rights. The state's trying to take away my property right to pump water from under, underneath my land. What we're seeing now, though, all across California, and great press stories coming out of San Luis Obispo County, where uh, bigger vineyards have gone in, huge irrigation wells have gone in, and people's domestic wells drying up. And we're seeing more and more of that. And so I think there's a, a groundswell of people wanting to see some reasonable ability to manage groundwater. They don't necessarily want the state to come in and do it, but perhaps easier mechanisms for local districts to better manage their groundwater. There's a new fracking law in California that will have some groundwater management uh, that some people think will get at this. Uh, it was intended for fracking, but it may have some uh, more data information on groundwater. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I haven't heard any mention of the F word uh, this evening so far, and maybe I missed it, but uh, what is your opinion about fracking uh, on groundwater, and uh, should we be moving more slowly uh, in that direction? What, what do you see the potential impact on our, uh, California's water? 
So, um, Heather Cooley? Yeah. Uh, hydraulic fracturing um, is being done in California, although, as, as you just mentioned, there was a bill passed, SB4, um, which is trying to provide better information about where it's occurring, um, looking at regulations uh, around fracturing. Um, so there, there's no doubt that it, that it will be happening um, and will likely be expanding. It, it certainly requires large amounts of, of water um, relative to conventional oil and gas um, development. Um, there are issues associated with potential contamination of groundwater and of surface water. And so, you know, I think it's an area that hasn't yet been well studied, although there are studies going on in SB4. One of the um, outcomes of that will be a study to better understand what the impacts are. Lester Snow, is fracking a threat to California's water supply? Yeah, um, I guess I'd start by saying I, I don't know. I mean, when, it, when this issue first came up and I talked with uh, groundwater um, managers and, you know, groundwater experts that were familiar with it, uh, they, they really felt it wasn't a big contamination issue just because of the difference in depth. I, I think that w- one of the biggest concerns that's out there um, that, the, in my opinion, the oil industry has done a terrible job with is they want to keep their chemicals proprietary. And anytime somebody wants to inject something underneath your property and they don't want to tell you what it is, what do you assume about it? That's pretty nasty stuff. And so I think there's a whole issue of trust going on here that's completely distinct from the hydrologic connection between the groundwater supply and fracking. And, and I think until that issue is addressed as to what's happening, how's it being studied and monitored, uh, there needs to be greater regulation of it. Well, this law, uh, authored by Senator uh, Fran Pavley, has disclosure of fracking chemicals, though not quantities, in the law. So that is coming, uh, according to the law that uh, Governor Brown signed. There's also supply competition, Bob Wilkinson. There's concern not only about com- uh, contamination, but just that there'll be more demands on, on what is already a fragile water supply. In California, I completely agree with Lester on this. I just came from meetings in Sacramento. We were talking with oil industry folks and the state regulators. There are arguments that it won't. The, the techniques that are proposed for California won't use a whole lot of water. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's part of what I'm hearing. Uh, assertions that it's uh, safe and, and don't be concerned. Uh, but I think Lester's uh, exactly right. If there is too much uncertainty and unknown in the process, it's very difficult to develop the trust. Uh, and as you talk to regulators, they're saying the same thing. We are really not sure because we don't have the information we need to be able to determine what's safe. So I do think we've got a way to go. I think what Fran did uh, is, is very helpful, actually. I know it was a very controversial bill. Uh, but uh, I think once again, of course, she's the same person who wrote both the California Seminole climate laws. And she uh, Senator really, Fran Pavley, she got a lot of environmentalists mad at her, but yeah. She did, but I think she's done a lot of uh, a lot of good work on this, and it was a very tough sled, but I think we're moving at least in the right direction of disclosure and, and then uh, determine whether or not this is can be done safely. I would hope it can, and then it could be a contribution. We're talking about California's freshwater at Climate One. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you. This, mess- uh, this question is for Brandon. From its inception until now, the Metropolitan has met its capital and operating expenses by primarily selling uh, imported water. With the long-term trend of in- in- imported water uh, going down, uh, the only option for uh, maintaining a-, a level of expenses uh, that's commensurate with what you've spent in the past is either to raise the price 
or, uh, you know, really change the business model. So my question is, do you think that uh, the, the, there's the political will within the current leadership to be transparent about that need for change? You mean the current leadership at Metropolitan? Correct. Oh, I, I, I think we're very transparent. We have a, we have, we have a, public, uh, a public board uh, that um, the combination of investments in water resources, what the impacts are going to be on uh, our sales and revenue basis, the sources of our revenues, uh, and our rate-making process is, is a public one. And so the key, I think, to addressing the question that you have is, um, can we continue to make and are customers willing to pay uh, for levels of reliability uh, that Metropolitan is seeking to provide for them? And, you know, that's just an ongoing balance of what are the costs of those resources uh, and what are the revenues that you have to be able to recover uh, paying for those. And uh, we're going to continue to look at those the same way we have um, and try to balance those things so that you have affordable, cost-effective water supply and a level of reliability that the customers desire. Let's have our next question in Climate One. Um, with the exception of rain barrels, most of the discussion has been around centralized solutions and certainly the Bay Delta plan, thinking about how much billions of dollars we're talking about there. I'm just wondering what you think about other technological decentralized solutions. For example, I recently learned about uh, the engineer Dean Kamen's um, the size of this chair, this water purification system that he's working with Coca-Cola to distribute in the developing world. Is that possible in California on the block or apartment kind of level? Technological innovation. Would you like to, Bob Wilkinson? Yeah, I'll start. I, I think it's a good question. And uh, I think you're seeing a trend in both the energy world, especially electricity, toward decentralized generation from many sources, especially renewable sources, rooftop solar and so forth. Uh, I think you're seeing the same thing in water. The studies that I've done indicate very significant amounts of water that's available for capture in the San Francisco uh, urban area broadly defined, and in urban Southern California, hundreds of thousands of acre feet, even with very conservative assumptions. And that goes to a whole range of technologies for how to capture and put that water into groundwater basins safely or capture and use it directly. Uh, And then you go to the treatment question. And, of course, the amount of treatment depends on the use. So there's a term fit for purpose. So if it's for watering the landscape or flushing toilets, you have a different quality requirement than for drinking and we don't drink that much of the overall water supply. We're using a lot for a lot of different purposes. So, yes, there are technologies now, uh, including reverse osmosis, which is very scalable. You can go from little systems under your sink all the way to major major facilities, but it's the same basic technology, using membranes to, uh, to filter the water. So I think that's an interesting line uh, to be looking at. There are cities now uh, that are tapping sewer lines. They call it sewer mining and treating that water and using it for things like flushing toilets in big buildings in cities like like San Francisco and capturing uh, rainwater in big buildings in major cities in Tokyo and using that right there in the building. And they'll often treat it for, you know, safe levels for a lot of the purposes like uh, like cooling towers and toilet flushing. So I think it's very intriguing. I think we're going to see a lot of technical innovation on that. Sewer mining. That was not a term thought up by the marketing no. to people, was that? No. <laughs> There's some other terms for it, but I won't use it. <laughs> the same people have brought us toilet to tap. Okay. Uh, let's have our next question, please. 
Yeah, the the Colorado River's always been um, uh, an important water supply in the American West, and um, <clears throat> it sounds like Lake Powell behind Glen Canyon Dam's very low, as well as Lake Mead behind Hoover Dam. And I think there was just an article in the New York Times that the inlet turbines for one or both of those lakes is at risk of actually going above the water level of the reservoir. So what does that mean for California or Southern California, the, sort of the health of the Colorado River? Okay. Uh, Brandon Goshi. Thanks. A, a very good question. Um, you know, there are a lot of parties involved with the Colorado River. It's a, it's a seven-state uh, project uh, with, you know, the states being divided into upper and lower basin. Uh, they ha- there's been a great deal of work on and study on how um, shortages on that system would be shared, what types of actions uh, could be taken to address those shortages, uh, how the water rights and the allocations between the states and the basins uh, are set. And so it, this, is not, this is not a problem that I think is uh, not being addressed. Uh, this, the Bureau of Reclamation, the United States Bureau of Reclamation, uh, just went through an extensive study on the impacts, uh, potential impacts of climate change on that system, and a lot of the actions or the the different uh, tools that can be used to try and address uh, some of the shortages that could occur. So, um, is it important? Yes. Is there a system in place now uh, with regard to water rights and allocations on the system? Yes. But is there work to look to see if there's a better way uh, to address those problems? That answer is yes as well. Thank you for that question. Uh, before we wrap up here in our remaining time together, I want to ask each of you briefly to address two questions. How do you manage your personal water footprint at home, and what can an average person do to reduce theirs? Bob Wilkinson, do you mind your sewer? No, okay. But no. <laughs> so, um, I'm sure that uh, I could be doing better. I did install a, a cistern, 1,200-gallon tank. Uh, they're not terribly expensive and fairly easy to put in. Mostly just to kind of test and learn uh, how much rainwater, and it's wonderful for the garden, so I'm enjoying using that. Um, we put in, I just put in a, a, a new, I have low-flow toilets, put in a new one that's 0.8 gallons per flush, half the U.S. code, which is 1.6. And I thought, well, I'll test this out. It works better than the old one. It works very well. And so there are very efficient plumbing fixtures that work really well. And you start multiplying that out times millions of toilets in California, and suddenly what seems small adds up to really big numbers. So, you know, you try to do that sort of thing. But um, uh, it, it's inside, it's outside, it's irrigation of uh, landscape. I don't have a lawn, so but I do have fruit trees, and they take some water. Heather Cooley? Well, so um, I've done, I think, a lot in, in my home. I have high-efficiency toilets, which use, you know, 1.3 gallons per flush, um, uh, high-efficiency shower heads, you know, important way to save both water and energy, uh, front-loading clothes washers. So I'm and, – and have and I have rain barrels as well. I have low-water-use plants. I'm at about 20 gallons per person per day in my house, so – Wow. Pretty low. Very proud of that. <laughs> How do you get the water out of the barrels? I mean, the gravity it just flows into the garden? What so I just have a, a, a water can, and then I, I water everything by hand. Um, so, you know, it works well for me. I, I, I imagine that the average person probably is not going to get down that low. But, you know, we've seen numbers in, in Australia. People are using 
35, 40 gallons per person per day. So um, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for efficiency. And the average in California is more, what, 100 much over 100, and some parts of California over 300 gallons per person per day, and much of that is outdoor water use. Um, so a, a lot of uh, potential to improve our landscapes on providing not only a water supply, but a water quality issue as well, um, habitat for native birds, native plant, you know, native plants. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity going forward. Professor Snow? I think you should have had Heather go last. I mean, <laughs> I mean they, if I'd known, yeah. The been. only way I could get my per capita down is add more capitas to my house, I think. <laughs> um, a, a couple of thoughts. I mean, just one thing that we did finally have no lawn anywhere. Everything is drought tolerant and on, on drip system to, to make that change. I think in, in terms of what, what people can do, there are a lot of simple things, and, and fortunately, there's an ongoing review of appliance standards. So the next time you replace your appliance, whether, whether it's a, a toilet or your dishwasher, constantly moving the energy efficiency and water efficiency up, and it's important to pay attention to that. Uh, one thing I would add, you know, a test done here in the Bay Area by East Bay Municipal Utility District that serves Berkeley, Oakland area, uh, they put out a different billing system so that you get, as a customer, details about your water use and compare it to your neighborhood. So no other changes than that. But by people having that information, it looks like they reduced their water use by 5% just by knowing how they compare to typical water use. So that's probably the best thing that anybody can do is understand their water use and what uses water in your home and then constantly pushing the standards to conserve energy and water. Here in San Francisco, the people at the Department of Environment say that that's one of the big uh, drivers for the composting uh, program, which took off very quickly in San Francisco, was that social norm. People saying, oh, my neighbor's doing this and you compost. So you get into that sort of socialization. That really drives behavior in a, in a sticky way, that it doesn't just happen and then go back to the norm before. Well, then people should invite Heather over, I think, would be a, right. another good thing. Yeah, the hand-watering, I just envision of Heather, you know, with, yeah, hand, with a uh, watering can. Brandon Goshi? Well, you know, I think Lester hit it on the head. It's understanding where your water use is. Uh, so in separating that indoors and outdoors and understanding where the most savings can take place. So on the indoors, um, Southern California, and so my house is kind of a manifestation of Southern California, the devices that we use inside the house are efficiency devices. Um, that's mostly what's available. Uh, it's been pushed uh, and incentivized by uh, Southern California agencies and builders, et cetera. Um, so on the indoor side, it's having those efficient water use devices, and, and we do have those low-flow toilets, low-flow shower heads, efficiency washers. Uh, on the outdoors, it's paying attention to how your, how your outdoor is landscaped. So it's one thing to have a number of square feet of irrigable landscape, but it's another thing to um, manage how you landscape that so that the water requirement is less. And so you have a mix of hardscape or water-efficient plants or drought-tolerant plants uh, and really uh, you know, try to make the trade-off. I don't have the fruit trees and the other kinds of uh, things that other people might make choices on like that. And so... Um, that just comes from the awareness of where the water is used and maybe there's a better way or an alternative to be able to use that water. And that's you know, part of the focus that I think 
you'll see metropolitan with water use efficiency is a shift to the is a more focus on the outside because I think that in the last 20 years the inside has been taken care of the outside needs to be taken care of uh, on the same way. Just to not let myself off the uh, off the hook here, we <laughs> recently installed a recirc pump on our hot water so mm-hmm. that it, uh, during certain times, uh, uh, four hours a day, it's on a timer. So when the kids are taking families taking showers, it's recirculating hot water so we don't drain good water go down the drain uh, just to wait for that that hot water. And we're down, I think, around 50 gallons a person. Uh, Heather, I, uh, yeah, I don't know if we can get down to where you, you are, but at least uh, well under the average. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Heather Cooley, uh, the Water Program Co-Director at the Pacific Institute, Brandon Goshi, Manager uh, with the Southern California uh, uh, Water District, and Bob Wilkinson from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and Lester Snow, Executive Director of the California Water Foundation. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming to Climate One today. Thank <laughs> you.